A House in the Mountains is set in Piedmont. The reason for that was that I wanted to write about the last 20 months of the war in Italy. My previous book really ended at the end of the 30s and I wanted to wanted to write about what it's like in Italy, what it, what happened in Italy for the 20 months of civil war while the Germans occupied. I was looking for an area which was fairly self-contained. I mean, I could have looked at other places. I could have looked at Tuscany or the Veneto. But what was very good about choosing Turin and the mountains above and the area that goes from Turin to the border with France was that it was very particular geographically. It's it, very mountainous, lots of good places for the partisans to hide, very tight-knit groups of people in the villages and in Turin. Turin was really Italy's sort of intellectual capital by then. In Turin itself, a very large Jewish population and a lot of the young people were climbers because they'd grown up leaving Turin and going up in the mountains and climbing. And then in the villages, the mountain villages, there was a very high number of Valdensians who were Protestants, they themselves having been persecuted in the years of the past. They had a very strong ethic about saving people on the run. So the combination of all this was the perfect sort of background setting to write, to describe the partisan war. What I was doing, what I was trying to do was what I always try and do, which is to take something small and use it to write a bigger, wider picture of history. And so, therefore, in my resistance quartet, what I did with the other ones, what I took was a village, I took a train, and I took a family. And in this particular case, I took four friends. And I took, they were all women, not that I only write about women in the book, but I wanted to also bring out the huge contribution made by Italian women to the partisan war. And so I went to Turin and I went into the archives and I started looking to see if I could find a small group of friends who could sort of, as it were, carry my story. And I found um, one who had actually cropped up in my book about the Rossellis, who was called Ada Gobetti. She was the eldest, she was, in, she was 40. And then there were three younger friends. There was Bianca, who just qualified to be a lawyer. There was Sylvia, who just qualified to be a doctor. And there was Frida, who was a great friend of Jewish students at the university. So what these four women between them allowed me to do was to describe sort of every aspect of, of the war for women in Northern Italy. Because, of course, through Sylvia, there was the sort of doctoring side. Both Bianca and Frida were friends with Primo Levi and all the young Jews who went into the resistance. And Ada became a sort of mother figure. And it was her house in the mountain at a place called Meana that became a sort of center that they all went to. One of the things that fascinated me originally when I started working on this was the extent to which Mussolini tried to create, if you like, a homogenous Italy. And fascism prescribed everything, what women should do, think, wear, how they should bring their children. They were not allowed to have certain positions and certain jobs. They had no say over their own money or their own families. They were entirely, as it were, in the keep of 
of their fathers and husbands and brothers. And of course, they didn't have the vote. And what was so interesting about the story is that in 1943, when Italy changed sides and there were thousands and thousands of Italian soldiers, conscripts in barracks all over Italy, who almost immediately were targets for the occupying Germans who wanted to arrest them and send them up as forced labor to Germany. They got away from the barracks, but their problem was that they were in uniform. It was the women in houses, farmhouses, villages up and down the country who took them in, took their uniforms, gave them civilian clothes and helped them on the way north. And in a way, this was the beginning of the women's partisan war. What happened was quite quickly, as the women moved into partisan life, they began to see that there was a quite other life for women. Girls who'd never been allowed to go out, walk anywhere with boys other than their brothers, um, certainly never allowed to go and stay on their own with, with boys, etc. Suddenly discovered a sort of freedom and a sort of responsibility. Ada started off by being a bit you know, a bit hum-ho about how much Italian women needed freeing and it wasn't. But quite quickly, she began to perceive that through these young women becoming partisans, it was possible to inculcate a sort of ed political education. So she and Frieda and, and, and the others, when they went up and down the mountains recruiting and taking messages and, and fighting with the partisans, also talked to village women about the future, about the need for a vote, about the need for greater equality. And they found very welcome listening ears, particularly in the factories in the north, which were, by 1943, had huge numbers of women working in them. And all these women became vastly interested in the idea of a, of a fairer, more just, Italy after the war, in which they would get the vote, in which they would be properly paid, in which there would be maternity benefits. So as the war went on, so you were getting this much more politicized group of women. During fascism, there were groups of fascist women. Mussolini founded a whole fascist female movement, if you like, and these were women who exercised. There was a great emphasis on, on health because the idea was that they had to be good mothers because what he wanted to do is he wanted to breed more boys and sons for Italy. So therefore, they, they were told what to eat. There were special classes on Saturday for exercise, but on that hand, they were only supposed to do special exercises. They could, for instance, run and jump, but they couldn't shoot. I mean, they would prescribe what was good exercise and what wasn't. But the whole emphasis was on turning them into, into, into good mothers, into making them, making them mothers. Special prizes were devised for women who had 10 children. And there was one famous occasion in Rome when every mother with 10 children was invited to go and meet Mussolini. The woman who didn't have children was defined as the Donna Crisi, the crisis woman. And she was portrayed in drawings and pictures and cartoons as being thin and, and neurotic and anxious and unhappy. 
And then there was the Donna Madre, the mother, the, the woman mother, who was portrayed as rounded and and happy and content and with all her children. And right through fascism, this was the this was the image of the fascist woman. Nineteen forty-three, Italy changes sides. At this point, there's very little resistance in Italy to fascism, because almost all anti-fascists have either been arrested and sent to the penal islands in the south, or they're in exile, or they're in prison, or they're under house arrest. So by forty-three, when Italy changed sides, there is very there is very little active resistance to Mussolini. The Germans then occupied. And the Allies landed in Sicily and began their very, very slow rise up the Italian peninsula. And all over Italy, groups of people got together. Now, these were usually a great mixture of groups. They were former soldiers who managed to escape the Germans. They were students. They were lawyers. They were professors. They were um, shopkeepers. They were factory workers. Those who could, those who were no longer safe to be around, formed bands and went up into the mountains or into hiding from where they began to put together sabotage attacks on the Germans. As time passed, all this was taking place during the winter and autumn of 1943. By the spring of 44, there were some estimated as around 100,000 partisans in groups um, in all parts of German-occupied Italy. Um, hiding out, uh, conducting sabotage, um, producing underground literature, attacking the fascists who had gone over to the Germans. So the war, the actual real fighting period between fascists and Germans on one side and partisans, the resistance on the other, really got fierce after the early spring of 1944. So for a year, there were tremendous fights and battles. One of the things was in the early days, the Germans did not expect any women to be involved. So it was far easier for women to take part, carry messages, carry weapons, um, because nobody was looking for women. Once they realized that there were women involved, the women were in just as much danger as the men. There was terrible brutality when the Germans and the fascists picked up partisans, um, they hanged them, they tortured them, they shot them, they took reprisals on the villages, there were massacres, there were terrible massacres all during those 20 months, terrible killings, terrible torture. It was without question a civil war, because what you have to remember is that for those 20 months, Mussolini had got together with uh, Hitler's help, a new puppet government in, in the northeast on Lake Garda called the Republic of Salo. And he got together a fascist army, fascist militias, fascist recruits. They fought with the Germans until the end of the war. So what you had was you had a terrible state where you had Italians fighting Italians. It was a civil war. There's always been some problem about acknowledging that it was a civil war, but that indeed is what it was.
in the immediate aftermath of the war, there was a reckoning. I should think about, they say, up to 10,000 former fascists were killed, were shot, and many, many others were taken away to prison. However, within a year of the end of the war, the Vatican and the Christian Democrats had come to power, and many senior lawyers, um, particularly judiciary, the courts, judges, etc., were back in their old positions. Nobody really wanted to prolong the idea of the war. So there was an amnesty. There was Togliatti, who was in fact a communist, but he was minister for justice, called an amnesty, whereupon all the fascists were let out of their prisons and a whole lot of partisans were imprisoned. I mean, the narrative for a long time after the war was was not particularly in favor of the partisans. That changed round, and, and then it rather went the other way. Nobody wanted really to, to acknowledge the fact that it had been a war of Italians against Italians. There was a historian called Claudio Pavone who, who in the 60s wrote a book in which she said, really, there were three wars going on simultaneously. There was a civil war, there was a class war, and there was a war against to get rid of the occupier against the enemy. And, you know, many of the partisans were fighting all three at the same time. In 1943, when Italy changed sides, in Rome, there was a provisional um, clandestine government which was set up and it had it had representatives from seven main parties. Now each of those parties in a sense contributed their own figures to the partisans. I mean the, the partisan movement was very political. The largest of the groupings were, were the communists. But you have to remember that Italian communism was not Stalinist. It was much more, if you like, um, socialist really. They were very strong in the north and they were very strong in the factories. And they had the biggest groups of partisans. And after them came the Partito d'Azione, who were, if you like, sort of centrists. And there were also monarchists and liberals and republicans and so on. The second largest group was the Partito d'Azione. A lot of the people I was writing about were were high up in the Partito d'Azione. They had quite a lot of the young Jewish men from Turin and the areas around Turin were with them. You have to remember that a lot of these groups were made up of a huge hodgepodge of people. You know, there would be a few communists, a few Partito d'Azione, a few people who weren't anything very much, a few escaped prisoners, a few Russians who'd been conscripted by the Germans and come over to fight the Italians. It was a huge and very, very muddled world. Where it became more political, if you like, was when the Allies, who were very slow to do so, slow to recognize the strength of the partisans, when they started finally dropping weapons, they were terrified um, of the that Italy might go communist after the war. So anyway, in the early days, the British particularly were very unkeen to drop weapons for the for the uh, communist partisan groups and chose to do everything they could to drop them to the Partito d'Azione and the other and the other ones. That slightly changed towards the end, partly under the pressure of the Americans, who were much more open-minded about it all. So the weapons were better distributed. But the whole response of the Allies to the partisans was a pretty a pretty grudging affair particularly the British, who were quite contemptuous of the Italians, who they saw as having changed sides and being cowardly. 
a lot of the British sources, British material, makes it absolutely plain that they really, really didn't reckon much from the Italian partisans. At the very end of the war, when everybody was taking stock, they were forced to acknowledge that, in fact, the partisans had done an amazing amount. But it, that was only pretty grudging and at the end of the war. And treaty, the war treaty, the peace treaty at the end, did not treat Italy particularly well. You have to remember that in the mid-20s, Churchill went to Rome and said, thought how Mussolini was was governing Italy and said, if I were an Italian, I would be a follower of Signor Mussolini. I mean, right up to Abyssinia and the Spanish Civil War, the, the British were quite in favour of what was going on in Italy. There wasn't much coming out about the repression. And people, you know, it's the famous thing. They liked the way the Italian trains ran on time. People came back from Italy saying it was all very clean and everything was going extremely well. So the real change came about at the end of the 1930s. Eden, in particular, was very hostile to Italy. And so when the Italians changed sides, it really sort of confirmed a lot of the prejudices in the British hierarchy about the Italians. And that really persisted right through until, until the end of the war. Well, one of the most poignant things that I found was that it was in, among the women, because the women who had fought these battles for a fairer Italy, when the parade came, when all the partisans marched in front of the Allies in May 1945, many of the partisan groups did not want the women partisans to march with them because even they, it turned out, did not really see the women as equal, whatever they'd done during the war. And that was, in a sense, the first horrible symbol of what it was going to be like afterwards. The women did indeed get the vote. That did happen in the first post-war constitution, they got the vote. But in many other ways, the women were largely returned back into the houses and homes. And it was not until the 70s that really greater equality came to Italian women. As for the partisans, well, one of the first conditions that the Allies made for dropping weapons in Italy was that when the war was over, these weapons would be returned. And there were indeed great ceremonies when, when the partisans were meant to return all the weapons that they'd had. Well, not all did, particularly the communist groups, in fact, kept some of the weapons. A good deal of fighting disorder, skirmishes and so on, went on through 1945 and 46, struggles for power until really it all quietened down in 46. What did the partisans want? Well, not a great deal. I mean, did Italy become a fairer place? A bit. Did they win the class war? No, not really. Won the war occupation. Tremendous residue of bitterness persisted for a long time. But interestingly, not in the same way as in France. I think the Vichy years have left a great, much more toxic uh, poison in the soil of France. The, the fascist years, I think, have less, less poison in Italy. Um, my four women survived the war, um, as did Arda's son, though one of them was held and tortured in the particular notorious torture centre in Milan, and the other one was arrested and got away. They all of them had very near brushes, near misses with death. However, 
they survived, which by no means all their friends and colleagues did. So they were a small, a smaller band, if you like. A lot of the Jewish ones were dead. Ada did, maybe you might say, but best. She got the most prominent position. She became vice mayor of Turin at the end of the war, the first Italian woman to become a, a vice mayor. Bianca became a very successful lawyer. Frida worked for the state became a civil servant. She would like to have become um, going to Parliament, but she never made it. She didn't get into it. The, 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 the casualty was, it was Sylvia, the doctor, who was anyway a very nervous, anxious figure. And after the war, she started prescribing drugs for herself and became addicted and struggled on until she died extremely young, whether overdose, intentional or not. Um, as did her young husband partner, who was also who was mentally unstable. I mean, they were the, they were the sad casualties of it all. The other three lived to very ripe old ages and spent the rest of their lives sort of campaigning on behalf of of women's rights, women's rights, and and the oppressed and left-wing causes. What these these women who never had been able to do anything suddenly found themselves doing was they found themselves in groups with people which included young men. They found themselves giving orders. They found themselves taking responsibility for, for what they were doing and for a lot of them became partisan leaders. So they emerged from the war feeling very different about things. I mean, one of the difficulties was that when they went back after the war, they were no longer prepared to simply do the cooking and be biddable at home until they got married. So there was a tremendous sort of demand and a sort of push for for equality, which came straight out of the the sort of partisan women participation. I think what came out of it most strongly was was the thing that always surprises me about people in these sort of worlds is that is when perfectly ordinary women, uh, men and women, people who have not hitherto been been particularly brave or particularly political or particularly thinking about what they can do for the world, suddenly find in themselves the most incredible sort of courage and sort of moral conviction. I think that's what the partisan movement really showed, was that there were this, this enormous number of people in Italy who had not been dulled by 20 years of conformity and fascism, but who were full of a desire to to find a new Italy, to, who did not want to be coerced and bullied as they were under fascism, who were genuinely bursting to find a new democracy. For it. And it was just below the surface. So what fascism had only done was just push them just below the surface. And it was all there waiting to come after the war. Mm-hmm.